Last week we, we looked at the first half of chapter 2 and we saw that Peter reminds us who we are, that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, people uh, belonging to God to declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his glorious light. And because of who we are, Peter says, we are going to live distinctive lives as we go through this world. We're going to live lives, holy lives among the nations such that it has an impact on the people around us. Live as strangers and aliens in the world. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. But, but what does it mean to, to live this good life among the pagans? What does it actually look like to be living as God's people? in the world. Well, like I said last week, that's what the rest of the book of 1 Peter is about. That's why I've called this uh, sermon series Evidence of Alien Life, because it's all about the evidence of what it looks like to live as aliens in this world. And here, in the centre of the book, from uh, chapter 2 verse 13 to 3 verse 7, we see that it's about living distinctively in our social relationships Holiness is not just about our private lives, but it's about our public lives. It's in our social relationships that holiness is worked out. And uh, that's where we live good lives that make an impact. And uh, what Peter does is he outlines three major social relationships that his readers experience. So firstly, there's the relationship with the state as citizens. See that in uh, verses 13 to 17. Then it's their relationship with their masters as slaves. Verses 18 to uh, 25. And then the relationship with their spouse as husband or wife. That's in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. So three major relationships. Citizenship, uh, slavery and marriage. And it's in the context of those relationships, Peter says, that, uh, that you live out distinctive lives that mediate God's blessing to the world. And the key word that comes up again and again uh, as Peter goes through them is submit. Submission is the key characteristic of, of Christians as they live in these different social relationships. And this week what we're going to do is we're just going to look at the first of those, the state. And then next week we're going to look at uh, slaves and masters. And then... That's it. I've got no more sermons left, so uh, someone else is going to have to preach the rest of the book some other time. So today, we're going to look at our relationship with the state as citizens. And so we're just going to be looking at verses 13 to 17. And I'm going to focus on two things that Peter exhorts us to in these verses. Two things Peter says about being good citizens. Firstly, he tells us, submit to your rulers because it's God's will. Submit to your rulers because it's God's will. And, and what Peter's saying in, in essence is that we are to submit, Christians are to, to submit themselves to every level of government. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, and in the context that would have been uh, the Roman emperor, at the time it was Nero, or to governors who are sent by him. And that word for governors covers all kinds of uh, subsidiary uh, rulers and officials, 
sent out by the emperor, right down to local officials. So the, the equivalent for us might be thinking about the, the queen or the prime minister, uh, then the cabinet and the government, right down to sort of local government and local officials like tax inspectors and traffic wardens. And uh, we have to submit to every level of government authority. Now perhaps after, after verses 11 and 12, Peter's readers might have been thinking, well, well, if we're aliens and strangers in the world, if we don't belong here, if, if our home is somewhere else, then why should, we, why should we submit to earthly authorities? Why should we be subject to them? If we're God's chosen people, we are, we are royal priesthood, we're not of this world, we belong to God, what is nearer to us? What authority has he got over us? So they might be thinking, or tempted to think that. But Peter says, no, part of what it means to live as God's people in the world is that you submit to human authorities. Uh, and the word that's used here for submit means literally to, to place yourself below, or to place yourself under. So the idea is that you accept that you are under authority, that you are being ruled, that there's a hierarchy and there are people above you and you are under them. But notice why we are to submit. It's not because uh, these rulers have intrinsic authority. It's not because they force us to obey. It's not because uh, they, we fear them. But we do it for the Lord's sake, Peter says. We recognise that God has put them in authority. God's established rulers to prevent chaos and anarchy and it's a good thing and so it's because it's God's will that we submit and that runs all the way through this passage verse 13 it's for the Lord's sake verse 15 it is God's will verse 16 we submit to authority because we are servants of God so what does that mean for us? well at the very least it means that we should obey the law of the land in every respect that is how we show we, we submit to those in authority. And I think uh, we're cool with that for most things. But, but also there's, there's a lot of other things. And I don't know, maybe we think they're not that important or we think that we don't actually agree with the law. And actually we're just much more casual about whether or not we really need to obey the law. So maybe it's speeding or maybe downloading music or software off the internet. Or, or trading on eBay to avoid duties and taxes, or not being completely accurate in, in our tax returns. Whenever we uh, do something like that, basically we're saying, I refuse to submit to authority. I've got the right to decide the rules for myself. I'm in charge. I refuse to accept that I'm under authority. Inherently, uh, we're saying we refuse to submit. And if our submission to authority is not for their sake but for the Lord's sake, then refusing to submit is actually disrespect for him. It's not just disobeying uh, the law, but it's disobeying God. We should obey the law of the land in every respect. I think there's also a challenge for us as well about our, our attitude to those who rule over us. I think in a lot of ways we live in a society where where disrespect and even contempt for the people that, that govern us seems to be the norm. 
We see it on, on TV and satirical shows like Have I Got News For You? We see it when uh, John Humphreys or Jeremy Paxman interviews someone. There's this sort of sneering disrespect. Who are you to be, to be ruling over me? There's a basic attitude of contempt towards our rulers that's gone far beyond respectful criticism. It just seems like it, it's, it's accepted that we, we can disrespect the people that are in government. We've got the right to, to insult them, to think that they're idiots and they shouldn't be there. And I think this passage and passages like this challenges us Christians not to get sucked into that, not to indulge that, not to be entertained by it. Well, this raises a big question, doesn't it? What about, what about bad rulers? Should we submit to them? We've been hearing a lot about Robert Mugabe in recent weeks. What about when you've got a ruler like that? Does, does this still apply? Well, Peter uh, doesn't talk about this problem directly, but, but he's not naive about it. He, he knew about the persecution that Christians were facing in other parts of the empire. He knew about the history of Israel, where God's people were repeatedly subjected to, to hostile uh, rule. But he doesn't actually deal with it directly here. But if you, move, if you look a bit further into chapter 2, when he talks about slaves submitting to their masters, he says specifically that they are to obey their masters, even if they are harsh. Their calling to submit doesn't depend on how good their master is. And I think we can extend that principle to governments and authorities as well. We can't pick and choose which rulers we submit to. We should submit to every level of authority that's established by God. Well, is this, is this absolute? Are there, are there no exceptions? Does it mean that whatever a government requires us to do, we have to do? Well, to answer that, we need to see that in this passage, God's authority is supreme. We are to honour the king, uh, Peter says in, in verse 17, but we are to fear God. We are to live as servants of God. Our ultimate authority is to him. And that means whenever there is a conflict between what the state requires and what God requires, we, we must obey God rather than man. John Stott puts it this way, if the state commands what God forbids, or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. Whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. And we see several instances of that in the Bible. So there's the Hebrew midwives in the time of Moses who, who refused to obey Pharaoh's order to kill the Hebrew children. Or there's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who refused to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They practiced civil disobedience. Or what about the apostles in Acts 5 when they're told not to teach in Jesus' name? And they say, we must obey God rather than men. Now notice there's a difference between this kind of disobedience and rebellion. You see, if we, if we do disobey, we should expect to take the consequences 
and suffer whatever punishment is set out in the law. And that's different from actively seeking revolution. In one sense, we still maintain respect for the law. We recognise that we've obeyed it and we accept the consequences of that. Now, we also need to remember that uh, we live in a very different situation from uh, Peter's readers. We've got, uh, we live in a democracy, we've got rights and privileges that people in those days didn't have. We, can, we have the right to object to the way uh, our rulers are governing. So we've got the right to cam- campaign, we've got the right to protest or to lobby. And we mustn't uh, take this kind of teaching in 1 Peter as to mean that we can't exercise those rights. Of course, we can, of course we're entitled to criticise to protest, to campaign, because the government allows it. So that's the first thing. Submit to your rulers, because it's God's will. Secondly, Peter tells us, do good in your community, because it commends the gospel. See, Peter goes on to say that we should do uh, much more than just obey the law. He says, we, in verse 15, we should do good For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. And we looked at verse 12 last week that says something similar. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So Peter Peter says that as Christians living as God's people in the world, we should make a positive contribution to society. See, Peter here is alluding to to the system of benefaction that was a, a normal part of, of uh, Roman culture of the time. In Roman society, citizens, particularly uh, the more affluent citizens, were expected to contribute to the local community. There wasn't a welfare state. So, so those who were able to provided benefits for the community as a whole. They were benefactors. And all the, all the public enterprises would have been paid for by private money. So if they needed a new city hall or a new pavement, some uh, rich person would pay for it. If there was a famine, someone would donate food to people. And the people who did this were honoured for doing so. For example, uh, they might put a statue of you up in the city centre, like that. Or the, with a plaque, they might uh, they might honour you with some sort of title or public office, or there might be some kind of inscription saying what you've done. And in fact, uh, uh, often the streets were lined with statues like this, dozens, maybe hundreds of them. There's so many of them that they started making them with uh, removable heads, so that when they died, they could uh, just take the head off and stick a different one on and stick a different plaque on and honour a different benefactor. That's why if you go to the British Museum and look, check out the, the Roman statues, they've always got far more heads than they have got bodies. I'm sure uh, you can check it. James is going to do a trip to the British Museum in November, so you can check that out. At verse 14, uh, when Peter talks about those who govern commending those who do right, it's better translated commending those, commend those who do good. See, Peter is referring to this system of benefaction, where people are praised and honoured for doing good in society. 
And Peter says, we are to be like that. As Christians, we are to be people who are commended for doing good. This is an example of uh, the kind of inscription I'm talking about. This is part of a pavement in the city of Corinth, dated to about 50 AD. Uh, And the inscription says, Erastus laid this pavement at his own expense and was made commissioner of public works. So here you've got a benefactor, Erastus, paying for this pavement and he gets given this title as a result. And this is really interesting because in uh, Romans chapter 16, Paul, who is writing from Corinth, sends greetings to the Roman church from a guy called Erastus, who Paul describes as the uh, the director of city works. It's very possible that's the same person. So what you've got is a a Christian who is is doing good in his local community and is honoured and respected for doing so. And that's what Peter is exalting all of us to. We're not just to keep the law, not just to keep our nose clean, but we're to be active in doing good in the community in the same way that uh, citizens in the Roman Empire were to do good. And Peter tells us uh, to do it because uh, it demonstrates that Christianity is not a threat. It's not subversive. It's to commend the gospel by demonstrating that, that Christians are good citizens and that Christianity is good for society. It's about preventing rumours that cast Christians as dangerous revolutionaries. Peter wants us to live such good lives that, that those who slander Christianity will be silenced. We to live lives that commend the gospel so people can't help noticing and they have to say, I'm glad those Christians are here. See, the, uh, the situation for Peter's readers was one where, where there wasn't yet state persecution. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Soon a severe persecution under Emperor Nero was about to start, but it hadn't started yet. There wasn't state persecution, but there was the beginnings of suspicion. There were rumours. There was slander. There was accusations. Peter refers to it in verse 12, though they accuse you of doing wrong. And Peter is saying that that in that situation, what you need to do to rebut those suspicions and to commend the gospel is to be good citizens. Do good in a community. And I think that's really important for us because that's very similar to the situation that we are in today. In this country, we don't face state persecution but we can see the beginnings of moves that might head in that direction particularly with the wariness about fundamentalism there's uh, there's an increasing suspicion of evangelicals our voices is being marginalised in public debate there's a growing feeling that that religion is dangerous that that people who hold religious uh, views too strongly are potentially subversive And Peter says that in order to silence these accusers, in order to rebut these suspicions, we must do good. We must demonstrate that we are a positive influence in society. And I think the evangelical church today needs to recapture that vision 
of doing good in society to commend the gospel. We've certainly got a great heritage of it uh, in this country. Historically, many of the major social reforms were, were led by Christians seeking to do good. So schools, hospitals, care for the poor, orphanages, prison reform, Christians were at the forefront of all those things. But in the last century or so, it seems that Christians, and particularly evangelicals, have, have drawn back from that kind of social action. I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, I think uh, it's a reaction against theological liberalism at the turn of the 20th century and the social gospel that, that viewed those, those good things and said, that is the gospel, that that is the mission of Christians. And evangelicals who are, who are keen to preserve the integrity of the gospel responded by drawing back from social action. But I think there's a, there's a second reason, and that's, that's the rise of the welfare state. What's, what's effectively happened is that the state has uh, taken over what Christians were doing. So the state took over the job of providing for the, the providing these benefits for society. And as a result, Christians couldn't really do them in the same way or have the same impact. And it seems to me that, that for the last few decades, what Christians have spent their energy and time on is, is uh, trying to, to campaign for the government and the state to do good, rather than just doing good themselves. But we live uh, in an interesting time where, where things are falling apart a bit, and the welfare state is beginning to fail a lot of people. And again, there's opportunities for Christians to, to fill those needs that have been overlooked, opportunities for us to do good in society. I think, for example, of uh, Peter Vardy, the car dealer in the North East, who's invested millions in uh, setting up academies, state schools, but with a, with a Christian ethos. And the result is that Christians have, have been able to invest in some of the best schools in the region. You don't have to be uh, wealthy to make a contribution in society. All of us can do something. And Peter is saying that as Christians, that is our calling. We should be people who are known and valued for making a difference in our community. And I'm really glad that as a church, in in the past few years, we've been involved in initiatives that that have begun to give us that kind of reputation. The most obvious one is, is the Comfort Trust, providing support and uh, activities for, for parents with young children. And it's, it's clearly met a big need in our local area. And it's really, it's had a tremendous impact on the way that we are perceived in the community. Another example is, is the litter picking that we've done in recent years on uh, Aston Ziet Nature Reserve, just behind the school. I got, we got a letter actually from someone in the local community after, the last, after we did it last year and, and she wrote this I, I just want to say an enormous thank you for the amazing litter pick you carried out on Aston's ears I didn't know you were doing it but I certainly noticed after that it had been done and when I discovered who had done the work I was determined to say thank you on behalf of the many many people who love and treasure the nature reserve there have been litter picks before, but nowhere near as efficient as yours was. So thank you so much for a labour of love. 
for the community to benefit from. It was appreciated very much. So just a few hours' work by a few people made a massive impact on the people in our local community and their perception of us as a church. Um, maybe we need to think, are there other things that we can do as a church? What, what are the problems in our area? What are the needs in our local community? What can we do as a church to make a positive impact? Or perhaps you need to think about uh, what you can do as individuals to do good and to show a wider commitment to your community. Maybe opportunities to become a school governor, opportunities to get involved in neighbourhood watch, or opportunities to uh, stand for local council maybe. There's all sorts of ways that we can, we can play a part, we can demonstrate that we are good citizens. And Peter says that will impact the way that we're perceived and it will commend the gospel. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Though they would accuse of all kinds of things, they cannot help but see the difference that we make and it silences them. They have to admit that they are glad we are here. Our city should be saying that. Our city should be saying, I am glad these Christians are here. 